The Drop Back with Sam Lewis, Matt Burns Peak, and Joe Costanzo. Hi, and welcome back to the Drop Back Podcast. I'm Sam Lewis, and I'm joined down the line by Matt Burns Peak. How's it going, Slew? Yeah, it's going good. I'm a little under the weather and I do apologise to our listeners for that today. You're going to have to put up with my bit snotty voice, which isn't the most delightful thing to listen to, but a whole lot better than Joe, who's stuck at work, I don't know, fiddling with light switches, was it? Yeah, he's, it, we didn't really get down to the bottom of this. Um, he sort of piped up on the group chat saying that he was unable to join us this week due to some issues with some lighting and then... What he's doing, if he's turned into some sort of mothman or something like that, we're not sure. But uh, unfortunately, no go this week. <laughs> it's the Turf Tale podcasting. It is. It pretty much is. Okay, so there was big quarterback news this week for the breakout of the Week 2 games. Big Ben's out for the year. Drew Brees smashed his hand against the f- unstoppable force that's Aaron Donald. And it also maybe seems like Pat Shermer's dallying on whether to play Eli Manning in Week 3. Yeah, it was interesting that um, in his press conference today, so it's Monday, um, that he said that it's uh, it's fair to start having that conversation about whether you know Jones is going to come in for Manning. Um, you know, previously he'd very much shunned that that notion entirely, even as much as before the the game on Sunday. Um, but I, I mean, I think after another pretty downright abysmal Eli performance at the weekend, I don't think that he can have. I don't think there's any defending that. Um, you know, why not put Dan Jones in? Yeah, absolutely. And it also seemed as well that it was never Shermer's man, Eli Manning. It was also always seemed like he was ownership's man. He was keeping Eli in there because he didn't want to lose his job. You see what happened to Ben McAdoo a couple of years ago. He lost the entire city when he decided to... The Geno Smith Manning. Yeah, who, who would have thought that Ben McAdoo was onto something? So either way, heading into Monday Night Football of Week 2, the current rankings of our score predictions are a stand. In third place is Matt with a record of 17, 13 and 1. In second place is Joe who has the unfortunate honour of the first ever... Well, he probably, he probably won't be that bad because the Browns will likely win tonight against the Sam Donald-led Jets. We said that week one. We did, but so he's 7 and 8 heading into... Heading into Monday Night Football. So if he doesn't win that game, then he's going to have the first ever losing re- losing prediction record. But either way, he's one game ahead of bats on 18-12-1. And then I'm comfortably in, in the lead with only, what, 14 more, 15 more weeks of the season. So it's basically on the home straight now with a record of 23-7-1. Yeah, I should have bet on it. It seems like... But if you ever got a hint hinkering on the NFL, always just put a bet on it because the likelihood is you'll win, right? Yep. Apart from nope, I'm I'm banned. I I banned myself from betting after the most recent World Cup because after the group stages, I'd lost quite a lot of money. <laughs> okay, so in that warning, which is I think just as convincing as the better wear ads that are being shown on TV, anyway. Don't bet, kids. Don't bet. <laughs> Let's get into the Cardinals-Ravens game, which was a lot closer than I was anticipating it being. Yeah, it was really um, you know, really interesting. I kind of thought that maybe this could be a, a big Ravens win. Um, you know, Stan Wilson, the other another one of the writers here at the Dropback, is a massive Cards fan, and me and him have been chatting a lot the early part of this uh, season and off-season about which of our teams is worse. We did agree it was the Dolphins. but uh, It is yours. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that's been proven over the last couple of weeks. Um, but Stan was was quite concerned about how his Cardinals were going to do this year as well. But um, yeah, pleasantly surprised as to you know how well um, they they managed to do in that game against a Ravens team that's been super impressive so far. So I was pretty impressed by Kyler Murray in this game, who last week struggled early doors against the Detroit Lions, and it did beg the question whether how he would compete against some of the better secondaries in the league who would be able to slow down his receivers. They've got some quality cornerbacks in Baltimore, but he was able to perform admirably. He's been he's the only the second quarterback in NFL history to throw for 300 yards in his first two games behind Cam Newton, who's obviously still an elite quarterback, so I'm not sure how great company that is. But either way, it was impressive. He Late in the game again, he put on another late play drive. He went four plays, 79 yards to make it only a field goals difference. 
But I think in the end, the Ravens, and particularly Lamar Jackson, were too good for the Cardinals this week. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. I think uh, Kyler Murray has shown flashes of his potential. Um, with this uh, you know, air raid offense, it's still sort of yet to completely take off. We've seen sort of glimpses in, in patching games, but they have struggled, especially early doors in, in, in contests to be able to you know, convert those red zone trips into touchdowns, not field goals. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. The, the, my, my main sort of takeaway from this game was, again, how impressive uh, Lamar Jackson was um, throwing the ball, um, you know, finished with 272 yards and two touchdowns. But, um, you know, some of his throws were really, really impressive. His uh, third and 11 late game throw to Hollywood Brown was just completely on the money. Um, and we he reintroduced that aspect of the, uh, the the running aspect of his game again with 120 yards on the ground. Yeah, it was pretty impressive stuff for Lamar Jackson. He showed it wasn't just a one-hit kind of thing against the, quite frankly, trash um, Dolphin side. But yeah, he missed... I did notice he missed Mark Andrews high a couple of times later in the game, but you did. When the chips were on the line, he did come through, and he's proved that he can win with his arms and, again, with his legs. Mm. And I'm so glad that Joe isn't here for this podcast, otherwise he would be insufferable about not only the uh, Dolphins game last week, but the fact that Lamar Jackson is... Uh, you know, looking really impressive throwing the ball because Joe was particularly salty this off season with the notion that uh, Lamar Jackson wasn't very accurate with his passing. <laughs> yeah, so despite being two weeks into the season still without a win, I have been encouraged by the Cardinals' form. They're 0-1-1, but they play some good football and once their defence gets reinforced by the return of Robert Alford from injury and the superstar Patrick Peterson, who's been suspended the first half of the season, they're going to look to be like a team that you really wouldn't want to meet on a, when your playoff implications are on the line. Absolutely. And I think the main thing, as you said there, is about sort of improvement from where they were last season to where they're going to probably finish this season. I think, um, you know, with a young quarterback with Kyler Murray, they've, they've certainly got the pieces there to be able to develop around him as well. Um, and I think that, you know, this season is obviously going to be way too soon for any sort of rebuild from from that sort of perspective. But in a, in a, maybe a couple of seasons' time, they could again we could again be looking at the at the Cardinals looking towards being you know a playoff team and beyond. Absolutely. So moving on to the Vikings at the Packers in an NFC North matchup of two teams that won in Week One, and the Packers raced into an early lead. And did that almost expose the Vikings' philosophy of wanting to just pound the ball repeatedly and keep it out of Cousins' hands? I think so, yeah, and I think that that was it in in a nutshell. The fact that um, you know Kirk Cousins threw ten times in their win on, in week one was for me very telling, um, and the fact that that as you said, Green Bay got off to such a fast start they could, that Minnesota couldn't just afford to just keep feeding Dalvin Cook. They had to use the, they had to go through the air, um, and I think ultimately it was Kirk Cousins' performance that was the nail in the coffin for them this week. You know, those two interceptions were so, so costly. Um, again, didn't look particularly convincing with his decision-making and some of his execution on the throws. Um, and ultimately, you know, they the, the, the Vikings rallied sort of later on, but the damage was already done and, and Cousins couldn't get him over the line, which is worrying signs for, um, you know, Kirk Cousins as the, you know, franchise QB of the Vikings. Yeah, absolutely. The second interception in particular, where he was fading away running away from an def oncoming defender and decides to just loft it into double coverage into the back corner of the end zone. And it's the type of throw that you just, as you re as he releases the ball, you know it's going to come down as an interception because there's no way a defender, um, wide receiver, comes down with that ball. Yeah, it was uh, an errant throw. And I think we've seen this quite a few times, actually, from Cousins, where sometimes his decision-making is just, you know, just wrong. Um, and it's perplexing because we have seen him as well We've seen the good sides of good good side of Cousins, where he's put the ball into tight windows, where he's been able to make all the throws and looked really impressive. But he's just so sort of accustomed to these moments of just making the absolute wrong call, um, and it's and it's coming it's coming up it's coming back to sort of haunt him and and the team. It's you know majorly impacting Minnesota's ceiling. They're a fantastic roster. Um, and at the end of the day, the fact that Cousins can't get them over the line in, in tight games is meaning that their sort of ceiling is is massively, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot shorter than what it should be. Absolutely. And they did manage to feed Kirk. He got 154 yards, a touchdown of 20 carries. But watching the game, it did appear as if the Packers were happy to let the 
Vikings run the ball. They had a big lead. There was time running out in the game. It's like, well, if you want to run the ball, if you want to get there slowly, yes, Cook reeled off one big run. But other than that, it didn't look as if the Packers were that worried about letting the Vikings rush the ball on them. Yeah, I feel like if you can limit, in, in any NFL game, if you can limit the offense to doing, you know, you know that they're going to only be able to do one thing effectively, or you know that an offense only wants to do one thing. So in, in Minnesota's case, you knew going into the game that they really wanted to lean on the, on the run game. As soon as you, you've put them in a position where that's really their only option, you know, the passing game isn't working, um, and that they have to feed, they have to you know go to the ground. As a defender, that makes your life so much easier. And like like I said, I don't think Green Bay were ever really worried about um, you know the the Vikings being able to run back up the score, you know, on the ground and be able to to come back into the game later on. Yeah, absolutely. And the Vikings may feel harsh done by by what was quite a tough pass interference call in the end zone when Dalvin Cook seemed to. It was almost a pick play and it was a tight call and it was maybe a little unfair to the Vikings who would have had a touchdown to make it a really close game going into the last stages. But that Packers defence is looking scary right now and if the offence can start to fire on all cylinders and perform to what Aaron Rodgers is capable of performing to, then the Packers are going to be a real team to contend contend with this year. Absolutely. I think Green Bay could, like I said, if they can put it all together and that offense can start performing to the same level the defense are, then they could go deep into the playoffs. Okay, so a game which wasn't as exciting, but it was a tight game and it could have important implications down the line for the NFC North, was the Bears at the Broncos. Yeah, so this was um, very much a sort of slugfest between two fantastic defenses. Um, Can I just interrupt you right there? And that is the exact same first note that I've got on this page. Defensive slugfest. Awesome. I love that. That's amazing. Um, but I mean, absolutely, completely a defensive slugfest. Um, you know, say what you will about both quarterbacks. The fact that, that this game did turn into uh, to just two defenses causing mayhem. But, um, you know, eventually Chicago are able to get the narrow win. Um, again, also really wholesome to see, uh, you know, Bears winning a game thanks to a field goal. Yeah, big Eddie Pinheiro coming big with the clutch. He hit a 53-yard field goal to win it. And he also hit 40 and 50-yarders as well throughout the game. So if that's part of the game, they don't have to worry on it. It did look like it was driving Matt Nagy mad over the off-season. Maybe he can focus back on play-calling and designing nice offensive plays for a Bears offense that has struggled this year. Absolutely, and I think one of the main reasons why their offense seems a little bit more in sync and a little bit more effective than it did against the Packers is that they gave David Montgomery the ball a lot more. Um, you know, 16 rushes, which he returned for so 62 yards, and, and he got a score as well. Um, you know, he was targeted in, in the in the passing game a bit as well. I think that you know after that first after that week one clash, we were all sort of crying out as to why David Montgomery saw so little of the ball, um, despite looking you know really promising when he actually did have it. Um, so I think that it's no surprise that the Bears put him into the game plan a lot more this week and rewarded with the win ultimately. And again, David Montgomery flashed some ability that has got many sort of touting him to potentially be the offensive rookie of the year. Absolutely, and I do feel bad for. For the Broncos, actually, I loved Vic Fangio's decision to go for it for two with the game on the line there, and it paid off for him. They first of all they got undone by a delay of game penalty, which was just ridiculous. Fangio fuming on the sideline, but they got let off an offside call against the defense after they missed the extra point, which is really get out of jail free card. But then they got absolutely, I think robbed of the game with Bradley Chubb getting called for a roughing the passer penalty on the hit on Trubisky after he finds Trey Burton that just there was nothing there I think that was a ridiculous call and it was unfair on Bradley Chubb who worked hard all game and it set the Bears up at the Broncos 45 and stops the clock for them yeah uh, I think that was a really sort of harsh call and um, I think especially week two this uh, of this season we've seen already some very questionable officiating decisions that have ultimately come up really big and, uh, you know, swayed the outcome of games already. Yeah, absolutely. Again, with another decision in this game, it's like, how did the Bears manage to get the timeout off? There was one second left as Alan Robinson hit the ground. Was he just waiting as he hit the ground? Because it looked like Trubisky called the timeout. I'm not entirely sure how he was able to do that. 
And you could and Trubisky made a great play on that last play for the Bears. He stepped up in the pocket, bought times and hit an open Allen Robinson. But before that, he did miss two throws that forced him into that situation in the first place. And I, again, I wasn't convinced by Mitch Trubisky for a second week in a row. Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. You know, when you compare it to the massive strides that Lamar Jackson's made, uh, you know, this year, um, I think a lot of people as well were sort of touting Mitch Trubisky to, um, you know, build on what was a promising second, second year last year um, and to be able to, you know, really orchestrate that Bears offense. And uh, through two weeks, <clears throat> again, really not convinced by some of his uh, decision making and some of his accuracy as well. Um yeah. Too many times we've seen him airball receivers or just, you know, completely make the wrong decision. And ultimately, yeah, I mean, with with Mitch Trubisky, everyone's been talking about, obviously, how impressive Lamar Jackson's been uh, this season following on from last year. I think a lot of people were looking at at Trubisky in the same sort of vein to take that sort of second to third year leap um, and really sort of help rejuvenate and and run that that Bears offense with you know the amount of weapons that they've got there they've got some really talented receivers and and weapons out the backfield there's but there was a lot of hype about what the Bears offense could be this season and I think so far Mitch Trubisky's really not helped his teammates out with some of his decision making and some of his accuracy we've seen him too often already from the first two games, airballing receivers and making the wrong decision uh, and ultimately putting the Bears into these difficult situations. And one really nice bright spot from this game was Emmanuel Sanders, who suffered a debilitating injury last year. And for a veteran of his age, for him to be able to come back and make a big-time touchdown in a game and nearly nearly 100 yards against a pretty stingy Bears defence, I'm just really pleased for the guy. He's worked really hard and he's come back stronger than ever. That's the thing, yeah, and I mean, you know, a torn Achilles is such a uh, you know big injury. We've seen uh, you know those sort of catastrophic injuries late on in players' careers, uh, you know, force players into retirement at times. Uh, you did sort of fear with Emmanuel Sanders that it could be that sort of story again, but no, fantastic to see him come out, um, you know, look like his old self again. You know, eleven receptions is is fantastic. Um, you know, he's clearly a massive part of that of that um, Denver offense. Um, and like I said, 98 yards and a touchdown, fantastic performance. And, you know, long may it continue. And, and let's hope that he manages to stay healthy and, and continue his great career. So in the Saints-Rams rematch that was billed as a huge game, one of the biggest games of the year following the fallout of last year's NFC Championship game, I think there were three big turning points that decided this game, one in particular, but and they all went in favour of the Rams. So the first turning point was on a Jared Cook catch and the ball got knocked out as he received it, bounced up in the air, bounced off a Rams defender, bounced into the hands of another Rams defender's hands. And that's on the first drive of the game as the Saints were marching towards the Rams end zone. And that, that, that sort of set the tone for the rest of the game. On the Saints' next drive, Drew Brees smacked his hand into Aaron Donald and seems to have torn a ligament, which is going to keep him out for about six games or so. You saw him on the sideline trying to pick up a ball and he couldn't even grip it. And another one with the game tied at 3-3 and Teddy Bridgewater's in the game, neither team are really doing that much. But Goff coughs up the ball, Cam Jordan scoops it up and looks to have a clear path all the way to an end, all the way to the end zone for a go-ahead touchdown in what's a tight game. And it's called back. The referees blew the play dead. They said that Goff did an incomplete pass. And on further review, it did turn out to be a fumble. But the point is that seven points on the board that had to come straight back off. Yeah, it was. I mean, and that's that's the main thing as well. You just want your officials in that situation when it's such a tight call like that. Um, I mean, I mean, personally, I don't even think it was a tight call. But I think when it's an incompletion slash fumble sort of scenario, um, I think you've got to let the you've got to let them play on because the implications can be so game changing. You know, Cam Jordan was taking that to the end zone before the play was blown dead. Um, the fact that they blew it dead while while he was on the return means that he, the, the touchdown couldn't start couldn't stand. Um, but I mean, on review, it was such a cl- it was so clearly a fumble, not a not an incomplete pass. I was baffled that the uh, the officials blew it dead in the first place. Well, yeah, absolutely. Not even. On review during the game while it was live, it looked like a fumble. Yeah, and it's one of those things. It's just obviously, just a baffling call. Cool. 
Yeah, obviously, you know, this season, um, you know, turning our heads back to sort of football in, in the UK again um, with the Premier League and the introduction of VAR, how much sort of controversy has been around that and about, you know, you've got to let let play go on and then use the technology to correct the mistake if there has been a mistake. Um, and, you know, in many ways, American football and the NFL have been one of the pioneers for the correct use of video technology for correcting mistakes. Um so it is. It was disheartening to see that yet again the Saints have been, um, you know, undone by an officiating decision that massively impacted the game. It wasn't quite as as catastrophic as um, you know what happened last year, last season in the playoffs against the Rams. Um, not quite as, as obvious, um, maybe. But again, seven points wiped off the board just due to the errors of the officiating staff and not the not the Saints at all. Yeah, it's a bit unfair, and I do reckon there's probably going to be another rule change. What do you reckon this summer after maybe another Saints fan tries to sue the league? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean they they must be feeling you know why always us sort of thing, and um, you know it, like I said, it's, they have been incredibly unhappy with uh, and rightly so with the with the decisions that have been going against them. Uh, I think Sean Payton was you know a, a sideline reporter asked Sean Payton what he felt about it, and again it was the same sort of you know why does this keep happening to us. Uh, response and uh, you know let's hope that later on in the season the Saints get managed to sneak a win thanks to a decision going their way for once yeah hopefully they'll get to review a PI call so the breeze injury meant that Teddy Bridgewater came in the game Teddy two gloves who turned down the opportunity to become the starter in Miami instead of being and chose instead to be the best paid backup in the league for the Saints and I just think that says something about a mentality as an athlete that he's unwilling to better himself to change it, to turn the franchise around. He'd rather sit on the bench for a few more years. He's not young anymore. He's not exactly like the longer he sits on the bench, the fewer chances he's going to get to be a starter. And in this game, he went 17 for 30 for 165 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. And this was with the Rams defense focusing on on Kamara, holding him to 45 yards on the ground. And it's just not a very strong stat line for in the biggest game of the year. Yeah, I, th- I think Teddy Bridgewater is a really sort of interesting case. Um, obviously, his decision to not go to Miami uh, and not be the starter in Miami and aim to sort of sit behind Breeze, wait out the end of the, the sort of twilight years of Breeze's career with the shot at, you know, hoping to get a chance at, at, as the main man in, in New Orleans when Breeze retires. But... Um, like I said, it, it does sort of, it's an interesting one with quarterbacks when they, they'd rather take that route than sort of try and fight out for the starting position. I think it is maybe different the fact that it was Miami and as we've seen this season, Miami is an absolute sort of storm of dysfunction and how not to sort of run a team, a professional sports team. Um, I think... It's a, it's a very toxic situation. I can sort of understand from that perspective why Bridgewater would be apprehensive about going there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing with Bridgewater is he had a few, uh, quite a few moments in the Vikings where he looked fantastic. He obviously then had that absolutely terrible knee injury. Um, and I think he's had a bit of a turning point in his career now. It's going to be interesting to see how much of, yeah, you know, how much of the offense, obviously they've got Taysom Hill there as well with the Saints. How much of that, offense is going to go through Bridgewater or, or whether we're going to see a situation where Taysom Hill gets reps at quarterback as well um, but I think this season is very much going to be um, a turning point for Bridgewater in terms of where that's going to position him in the league going forward yeah absolutely and you can see what losing breeze did for the Saints offense and how much he does contribute not just as a physical pass of the ball, but in protection, he's calling protections. The Saints line looked dramatically worse once he left the field. I don't know if how many audibles he's calling, but there are less open receivers. I don't think Sean Payton got suddenly worse as a play caller. That doesn't just happen overnight. And Bridgewater's going to have a lot to prove in the next six games, which are tough but winnable games. There's at the Seahawks, away um, home to the Cowboys, home to the Bucks, away to the Jags away to the Bears and then home to the Cardinals and apart from the Bucks I think all of those could be potentially tough games for the Saints but not games that they look at the beginning of the year and think oh we're going to struggle to win these ones yeah I, I mean without Breeze the the Saints look a much less scary prospect uh, and I think there's going to be a few of those games that they're now actually like I said at the start of the season you'd have you'd sort of bank on those being 
fair, not maybe not easy wins, but you know, comfortable enough situations where you, where you assume the Saints would be able to get a win, um, and they'd be the overwhelming favourites for. I think now that it's Bridgewater instead of Breeze, we're going to see them slip up uh, potentially on a few of those games that they would have sort of had down as gimmies at the start of the year. And on the Rams side of things, their defense looked better. Yes, it was against a weakened Saints team, but you've still got to just play against what's in front of you. And it was proven how important Cooper Cup was to that Rams offense. He's back now. He looks fully healthy. And it just is that added element. It's that safety blanket for Jared Goff that they seem to be missing in the Super Bowl last year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Cooper Cup was fantastic in this game. Five receptions for 120 yards and a tu- and not n- nearly a touchdown. That's, that's oh, this absolutely screwed me in fantasy. <laughs> that, that 67, well, not quite 67, 66 yards uh, reception, which was, you know, fantastic. The I think that, that sort of epitomizes what he brings to the uh, Rams offense, that toughness, that consistency, um, the extra effort to, to turn that, that short throw into a big gain um, after a fantastic move to get separation away from the DB as well. Um, if, if they can keep him healthy, I think he makes a massive difference to the Rams. Speaking of keeping healthy, Malcolm Brown, another good game on the ground. Yes, he's not the same back Gurley is, but he's good enough that it means they don't have to keep Gurley on the field and pound him into the ground every play like they almost did last year. Well, that's the thing, isn't it, with Gurley? I remember this was one of the key talking points in the first episode of the podcast was, you know, how many games is Gurley going to be able to play with his history of knee injuries and the latest sort of off-season where there was a lot of tension about how much he could contribute this year and what his longevity is. The fact that Malcolm Brown's come in and looked really impressive spelling him is is really good signs for the Rams. Um, and like I said, it allows them to really sort of put Gurley on a snap count, although they'll never admit to actually doing that. They've definitely got Gurley on a snap count um, in terms of, you know, managing how much they have to use him and using him sparingly in situations where, uh, you know, maybe they're up by a lot or, or where they can put Brown in and get the same sort of production uh, sort of in, in situationally as they would with Gurley. Okay, and that takes us to our final week two spotlight game, which was the Eagles at the Falcons. And I stayed up and watched this one as an Eagles fan, and then at 4.30 in the morning, I was pretty upset. i just seen us almost fight back to get another win. And But then, when I woke up again this morning, I rewatched the highlights of the game, had a look at on the 40-minute breakdown that they do on NFL Game Pass, and I was a little bit more optimistic. Yes, it was annoying to see a game that we probably almost should have won, but I was optimistic that despite... Despite the injuries we had, Jackson, Goddard, Jeffrey, and at one frightening moment almost Wentz as well. But I was optimistic because Carson Wentz looked like 2017 Carson Wentz again. He was escaping all over the place, extending plays, hitting receivers downfield. That throw where he knew where Nelson Aguilar would be on that prevent defence was a brilliant timing. And it was thrown just in time as well on fourth down. And so despite the loss, I'm quite optimistic about this Eagles team now. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly uh, a lot to be optimistic about. Um, Carson Wentz, like I said, took a while to get going. Um, First half looked to struggle a little bit, but really bounced back massively in the second half. Looked like the Carson Wentz that we knew and loved from earlier in his career, where he was, you know, that escape artist. He was able to extend plays and make things happen out of nothing. Um, I think in the end... uh, the main point for me was the Atlanta Falcons are very, very are a very, very good team, and I think can go quite far this season. Um, and for me, it just seemed like two, you know, heavyweights of the NFC going head to head, and sort of showing the quality that they both have. In the end, um, you know, that Julio Jones screen pass that he took fifty four yards for a touchdown, uh, you know, was the killer blow, but. Again, there's not a lot you can do about that. You know, when Julio Jones is in that sort of mood and is playing like he can play to that sort of caliber, then there's not really much anyone can do to stop him. Um, but I, like I said, I think the Eagles, uh, you know, showed showed that they have a lot of depth and and really showed off the fact that they are one of the deepest rosters in the league. Um, and like I said, Carson Wentz looking a bit more like his old self again is a really promising sign for you guys going forward. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I was really impressed as well by Jeff Schwartz's defence as well in the second half of the game. Yes, they allowed Joe to score that last touchdown, but that's the type of things that are going to happen when you play the system, the all-out blitzes that Jeff was employed. That Jeff, I don't know why I'm calling him by his first name. Just good that's how much you love man. <laughs> absolutely, that um, Schwartz was dialing up. I mean, he he saw that Caleb McGarry went down the seconds Falcons rookie O lineman to go down that right hand side of the O line, and yes, it held up well, but. The Eagles' defense in that boom or bust system that they played in managed to limit the Falcons in the second half, and that's almost frustrating for me as an Eagles fan. It's the second week in a row that we've gone down behind big in the first half, and however good these two coaches are at adjusting, it makes me question what are they doing throughout the whole of the game week in preparation for the game that they then have to adjust their entire plan at half time just to have a chance of winning the game. Yeah, that, I mean, I think that's a really fair point as well. The fact that, um, you know, two weeks in a row now started quite slow, but, you know, due to some fantastic adjust- adjustments made during the game, you've been able to come back and grab a win and then nearly grab another win as well uh, yesterday. It, it does sort of, like I said, beg the question, if you could, if they could just get it right for, before the game starts, then maybe maybe we're looking at an Eagles team that are 2-0 and and with, with a bit more of a comfortable, uh, you know, couple of wins under their belt. Yeah, so Dirk Cutter is someone that definitely got the game plan right, the Falcons OC, and he decided the last two games in the Eagles-Falcons would be fairly low-scoring games, which is strange for two high-powered teams. It always comes seems to come down to the wire in low-scoring defensive matches between these two. And the last two games, the issue that the Falcons had had was that they can get to the red zone and then at that point they struggle to move the ball forward they struggle to get the ball to Julio Jones but they dialed up some really nice plays from around 40 yards out they realise that's a soft spot for this Eagles team when they like to blitz as the opposition gets into the half and they hit a couple of deep balls down the middle to Calvin Ridley who missed one grabbed the other and there were a couple of times from that 40 yard line where the Falcons game plan really took into effect and was a really well thought out move yeah, and that, I mean, looking back on uh, you know last year where they did really struggle to get in the red zone, and I remember um, Julio Jones in particular. Everyone was sort of baffled at the fact that Julio Jones, touchdown wise, had such a, a down year. Um, like I said, I think they've worked out that maybe Matt Ryan isn't the best when it comes to you know tight tight spaces in the red zone. Maybe you know the offensive weapons that they have, um, for whatever reason, it wasn't clicking there. So they really sort of, have sort of taken to targeting their their sort of chunk plays or their or their their touchdown plays if you like from just further out giving themselves a bit more room to use the big body of Jones to use the pace of Ridley um to to get into the end zone without having to sort of trudge into the red zone as it were Mm. and so like the last two games between these two sides it's come down to a fourth down play and it's only fair that the Falcons have managed to reach one this time every time between these two I'm on the edge of my seat it's an exhilarating match and it's come down to inches again yeah, it's absolutely always a fantastic match to watch Falcons Eagles, and uh, you know, like I said, we'll have to wait and see what, what what the next one looks like later on. Okay, so every year we overreact to Week One results. Teams are a bit rusty. Their defense is generally of the upper hand, and things don't play out the rest of the season as they appear that they will do in Week One. And last week, I, after all off-season building them up, I promptly jumped off the 49ers bandwagon. I was disappointed by their showing in Tampa Bay. But they're now 2-0 for the first time since 2012, and they tore apart a Bengals team that also looked pretty good in Week 1. And I would like to sincerely apologise to Kyle Shanahan and the rest of the 49ers organisation and fan base, and please ask to get back on that bandwagon. Jumping straight back on. <laughs> straight back on. I... I don't know why I doubted Kyle Shanahan. As you can attest to, all the off-season I spoke about how great a coach he is and if it wasn't for Sean McVay, he would be hailed as the new young genius in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, one game in was was quite early to, to abandon ship, to be fair, Slute. Mm. No, but I just think it shows as well his system and I was disappointed Joe isn't here again for that, that the great thing about Kyle Shanahan's system is that he doesn't require these high-paid running backs They've got Jarrett McKinnon and Tevin Coleman, who are both injured right now. You know what? Doesn't matter. Matt Breeder's going to put up over 100 yards on just 20 carries or so, 10 carries or so. And that, again, once they get the running game going, brings off a powerful play-action game. Garoppolo threw three TDs. He also threw a silly pick, which is 
another gripe I'm beginning to have with this Niners team. And no, again, Kyle Shanahan came with a great game plan and he put over 40 points on the board. Yeah, and I mean, I think that the balance that that the 49ers are able to bring to their offense is what makes it work so well. Like you said, uh, Matt Breeder, 121 yards on the ground from 12 carries. Uh, they also had Mostart with 83 yards on the ground from 13 carries. Um, and that's allowed them to get their weapons in the receiving game open. I predicted before the season started that Debo Samuel was going to be a massive part of this uh, you know, 49ers offense and was going to be... We're gonna was gonna develop potentially into a bit of a touchdown machine, um, and you know he 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 featured massively in the game plan. Five receptions for eighty-seven yards, and obviously that that touchdown as well. Um, they have so many good weapons, and they the the way that Shanahan's able to use them and put those players into space um, is why that they were able to put up forty-one points on a on a Bengals defense that really held their own against Russell Wilson. Um, you know earlier in, uh, in in week one and and like I said looked pretty impressive in that week one contest against the Seahawks so you know 41 points against that that Bengals defense is no mean feat and I think shows that that the 49ers have a lot of potential and Kyle Shanahan certainly knows what he's doing running that offense yeah and a note to that Bengals defense uh, again that may have been another slight overreaction from week one they did have multiple breakdowns for apparently no reason and a few missed tackles as well that allowed 49ers to pile up yards after the catch but that happens against Shanahan offenses they get defenses moving all over the place not no idea where the ball's going and breakdowns happen so Matt where did you overreact in week one where's I overreact in week one I think um and I think it's going to be um a narrative that uh, becomes a bit more tiresome throughout the season I knew the Dolphins were going to be bad I just I don't think I realise quite how terrible the Dolphins are planning to be this season. And I think it does come down to to that word planning as well. The fact that, you know, week one absolutely dismantled on all levels by the, the the Ravens, who are a fantastic team. You know, Lamar Jackson played fantastically well, but you know, the body language of the Dolphins players was terrible. After the game, Mink Fitzpatrick promptly requests a trade. Loads of rumors about Kenyon Drake also potentially wanting uh, out. Multiple sources saying that a lot of the senior figures in that locker room are wanting, uh, have, have spoken to their agents about trying to get them out of Miami. And, I think going into season, all the jokes were, you know, the Dolphins are going to be terrible. They're going to tank for Tua. Um, it's going to be a rebuild year, yada, yada, yada. But the the harsh reality of losing by 49 points and then by 43 points on back in, you know, two weeks in, losing the points battle 102 to 10 over two weeks is, you know, how can you then build a positive culture from that you know, to, to, to start to rebuild your new, your, your franchise with, you know, you know, greener grass green grass in the future um but unfortunately i think that the initial shock of that 59 10 and then the subsequent 43 is gonna you know we're gonna see the dolphins lose by big scores this season and it's not it's gonna lose its you know shocking nature as we go further along because i don't see this dolphins team being able to beat any other team in the league right now yeah, so the issue I have with this Dolphins rebuild is the lack of pieces, young pieces they have to build around. Minka Fitzpatrick wants out. He's the Swiss Army knife that they thought would be the key to their defence going forwards. they got Laramie Tunsil's been traded. They've got Xavier Howard down to a new long-term deal, but he's one cornerback. He's not much you can do around that. And on offence, Kenyon Drake, as you said, there are the rumours about. Kalen Balage looked iffy against the Patriots, just decided to throw it into Jamie Collins' hand because they weren't down by enough points. I don't know if this is a tanking tactic, just to get the points differential down. If it is, maybe a smart move, but somehow I don't think it is. And I just... You're right, there is no light at the end of the tunnel for the Dolphins at the moment, especially when a Steelers franchise, an 0-2 Steelers team, has just lost Big Ben for the season and may also try and nab that number one spot. Yeah, we. I had um, a one of the people in our in our fancy league who's a massive Steelers fan uh, message me saying that that they've now they're 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 trying to race us for that number one pick. Um, I think um, I th- I mean there's no contest between who's got the better roster between the Steelers and the Dolphins. The Dolphins have got comfortably the worst roster in the league. I think um, I was talking earlier in the day uh, with with Usulu and Joe about. I think that this 
Dolphins team could be worse than the 0-16 Browns that we saw previously. Um, at least that 0-16 Browns team had a couple of good players. They also competed in games, I think, is the main thing. They had a few close games. They had a close game against Miami that year, which they were very unfortunate to lose. Um, even the last game of Everyone's the year... Everyone's unfortunate to lose against Miami. Yeah, that is true. Um, but even the last game of the last game of that season went down to uh, you know down to the wire with a Corey Coleman drop on fourth down. Uh, you know they were competitive. This Dolphin group doesn't look competitive. There's been so much um, you know tension in the organization about players not being used in the way they thought. Players not buying into or believing the scheme, both on offense and defense. Minka Fitzpatrick's main quarrels are with how he's being used on defense and being used as basically a box safety, which doesn't, you know, Minka Fitzpatrick's thing was that he could do a lot of things pretty well. The one thing that was always a bit of a question mark was he's not going to be the best in run support because he doesn't have that big body. So sticking him in the box for the majority of his snaps, which is what they did against the Ravens, isn't an effective way to use that type of player. Um, on offense as well, the fact that Kenyon Drake had six touches in, in last in in the last game, I think tells a big tale about you know he's the best probably skill player on that on that offense and he's not being given the ball. Um, there, I think there's certainly a lot going on behind the scenes. I, I think we'll see a few more Miami trades um, outgoings before the end of the season. Um, I think when we do get to the draft, if if you know the Dolphins are able to get a Tua, fantastic. I think that the, the actual issue is then going to be... And then what? Tua gets battled behind an O-line that doesn't exist and throws to precisely no one. Exactly. I think they're, they're going to struggle to build a, win, a winning culture from the ashes of this season. Okay. So moving on to a more positive note, but I've still got a ne- negative take on it, where we were right in the first week of the season. And I think we mentioned it earlier, but Mitch Trubisky has struggled tremendously the first two games. This week he was 16 for 27 for 120 yards, which is certainly not him winning the game. That's him barely not losing the game for the Bears. And I think Matt Nagy knows it as well. From about the halfway line, the play calls that the Bears have gone with, they've run the ball 15 times and only passed it three times. And is that not just an awareness of a play caller that his quarterback can't get it done yeah I, I think absolutely that's a you know an OC knowing the limitations of his quarterback which you know you can say that's good you know in terms of how an OC operates I think you can say you know that's smart from him but I think that that more at this level shows that they don't they don't trust Mitch Trubisky in the red zone uh, they don't trust that he can stay turnover free which is a massive part of the game um and I think we're going to see more and more the Bears start to turn into a bit of a running, a bit more of a running, um, a running focused offense. And they're going to go go that more sort of Jacksonville Jaguars direction of, um, you know, have a, a massively dominating swarming defense and then try and win the game with game management and running the clock down. I don't. Th- I think we're going to start to see Mitch Trubisky being faded out of the game plan with his arm a bit more. Mm-hmm. And another th- point where we we're right, where everyone was right is that this pass interference review is a complete mess. Yeah. The Vikings had a pass interference. We ruled ruling out a touchdown earlier earlier that we mentioned that was never a pass interference call. It was just a pick play. Seattle successfully challenged for a pass interference call that didn't look anywhere near clear and obvious enough to be overturned. And that's one thing we were promised, that this would only be called on plays that was so obvious to the eye that we were previously screaming why there wasn't a flag. Plays like the one in the NFC Championship game that were obvious to anyone that watches the game. But 50-50 judgment ones should not be overturned. And the Falcons unsuccessfully challenged a play that looked more PI than the one the one Seattle challenged that was going that was given. I think coaches were told that by the end of week three would have a clear idea that coaches would know what is a PI and what isn't what will get overturned but in the situation where we don't know what to challenge well coaches don't know what to challenge because who knows what the refs are going to give some refs are giving some stuff and the others aren't giving anything at all yeah and I think that's the key there the fact that it is it has become such a subjective sort of thing you know there's no diagram there's no clear line of what is a PI and what isn't um it it does sort of boil down to what the refs that are officiating the game think. And I think that that puts the game in a pretty dangerous place because 
that you can't really uniform that. You can't uniform a ref's opinion if it is something as subjective as, as you know, was that enough of a, of a push-off? You know, was that enough of an, of an impediment? Was that a pick play or was that just two, two routes sort of intertwining? Um, it, it is a worrying sign that two weeks in, we don't have any more clarity in that and that we are seeing such a discrepancy between what is being given as PI in one game on review is not being given in another game um, in, in a similar situation. So I, I, I think it's a, a point where we maybe need to see some sort of rule change um, in terms of the terminology of the ruling. Maybe, um, you know, it's something the NFL needs to look into in more detail at the end of this season as well. Um, but it's certainly sort of worrying straight off the bat that we, we don't have a clear idea of, of, you know, what is clear and obvious when it comes to PI reviews. OK, so our week three predictions, we've got 11 quick predictions and then five that we could go into a little bit more detail about because they're a little bit more juicy matchups. So the Titans at the Jaguars. Um, I'm going to go with the Jaguars. I think that they get their first win of the season. Their defense looked impressive, despite a couple of uh, Jalen Ramsey's drops. Uh, I like the I, I like the Titans. They've impressed me, especially week one. I think they were they were fantastic. But I think that Jacksonville ultimately get their first win here. Okay, I'm going with the Titans. However impressive Gardner Minshew is as a man, he still only managed to put three points up on against the Texans defense that looks shaky at best. Titans win this one. Lions at Eagles. Lions, Eagles. Uh, I'm going to go Eagles. I like uh, the rejuvenation of Carson Wentz in the second half last game. I think that uh, the Lions have looked impressive as well at times. Uh, I think ultimately new blood Carson Wentz is going to, you know, pip them with maybe maybe another late game renaissance and the Eagles win it maybe by three. Absolutely. Forgot to mention, Joe went with the Jaguars before in the previous game. Joe... And they are also going to go with the Eagles in this one. The thing that's threatened the Eagles so far this year is speed down the field. Kenny Golladay is a good receiver, but he's not that burner that Calvin Ridley was in the last game that had Eagles in fits. I think Eagles take this one. Jets at the Patriots. Yeah, I think for me it's going to be the Patriots here. The Jets are without their you know starting QB, Donald, due to mono, which was a bit of a, a bit of a shocker. Um, but I think that uh, you know Patriots have been so impressive. Yes, they've played Miami and the Steelers, who are the two franchises in the most trouble at the moment, but have con- conceded a grand total of three points in in those throughout those two contests, and have looked you know every, every bit the AFC powerhouse that they've been over the last few years, and potentially even more impressive. Um, I think that it's going to be the Patriots potentially by quite a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Probably would have picked the Patriots even if Sam Darnold wasn't out of the game. Without him in the game, I don't think the Jets have much chance at all going to Foxborough and trying to get a result. Joe agrees because, of course, he does. It's the Patriots against the Jets. So, the Broncos at the Packers. I've got the Packers winning this one. I think their defence is getting better and better each game. And I think their offence is also improving. I don't think the Broncos could challenge them. They've not got enough on offence. And I don't think their defence is quite as good as the Bears either. Yeah, I'm going to go Packers as well. Um, and for me, it's the defense. I think that the Broncos offense has been shaky so far this season. Emmanuel Sanders, um, you know, looked really impressive last game, but he's really been the only bright spot so far. We haven't seen the same production from Lindsay um, and Foreman as we did last season. And I think that uh, I don't really trust Joe Flacco to be able to take on that that Packers defense and come up. So I think the Packers will ultimately win that with a, with a defensive uh, impressive showing. Absolutely, and Joe agrees with both of us. In the Dolphins at the Cowboys, Joe and I have both gone for the Cowboys. I don't really think this one needs much explain. The Dolphins have looked useless, less than a team. The Cowboys looking really, really good. Could could possibly um, challenge for a Super Bowl this year, actually, the way they've been playing. Their offense looks rejuvenated. They're looking strong on defense, and I think they win this one comfortably. Yeah, the, the, the Cowboys are going to win because the Dolphins are crap. Okay, spoken as a loving fan. The Bengals at the Bills. Bills. I'm going to go Bills. I think Josh Allen has, um, you know, still maybe not as accurate as you'd want your quarterback to be throwing the ball, uh, but has really grown into his role, you know, game managing and and using his legs to extend plays. And that Bills defense is is really impressive as well. We've seen next to nothing from the Bengals offensively outside of John Ross so far this season. Um, And I think the Bills are going to make Andy Dalton and that O-line's life a bit of a misery and I think will ultimately rush all over the uh, Bengals for a win. 
Absolutely. I've gone with the Bills as well, as has Joe. I picked the Bills to make the playoffs as a wildcard team at the beginning of this year. They've won two games. Yes, they haven't been against the greatest teams in the league, but I can't turn away from them now, going with the Bills. So, the Giants at the Buccaneers. I'm going to go with the Giants to win this one. I don't think they're bad enough as a team to win less than two or three games this year. Yes, they don't look great, but I think a Buccaneers game is one that they could possibly win. Yeah, I'd agree. I'm going to lean more towards the Giants here because I think Saquon Barkley can... He's a player that can win you, I think, two games a season by himself, pretty much. Uh, I think that the Buccaneers aren't, aren't going to have enough on defense to be able to stop Barkley. Um, you know, Eli Manning's not really a factor when you can keep feeding Barkley with runs and screens and short passes, and, he can, and he's got the potential to take it to the house every time. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go with the Giants on this one, and I, and I think there's still question marks about uh, James Winston and that Buccaneers offense. Yep, Joe's gone with the Giants as well on this one. And the Panthers at the Cardinals. I think the Cardinals have what this one. Unless Cam Newton can show that he can pass the ball or run the ball, I'm not going to pick the Panthers for the rest of the year because they just don't look like they can do much. Um, Cardinals coming into their own, put up a good show against a really good defence in the Ravens, push them close. And I think they take this one for the first home win of the season, for the first win of the season. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna go with the Cardinals as well. I've, I've been, you know, severely underwhelmed by Cam Newton so far this season. Um, if you look at the the percentage of uncatchable passes through two weeks of, of the season, Cam Newton is the league leader with 34.2% of his passes being uncatchable. Um, he just looks completely out of rhythm and, and not his usual self. He doesn't look mobile. He doesn't look confident throwing the ball. He doesn't look like he's got that arm strength that you usually associate with him as well. Um, I think until Cam Newton can sort of get it back together or you know if it transpires that he's injured and needs to, and needs to take time off I think that that pa- that Panthers offense is going to struggle uh, and I like the Cardinals I think I like what they've been able to do late in game so far and I think they're going to get their first win here as well absolutely Joe agreed with us on that one which we're all agreeing on all of them so far except the Titans at the Jags um, the Steelers at the 49ers no Brown no Bell no Ben I think the 49ers take this one at home Yep, completely agree as well. Uh, I think Mason Rudolph didn't look bad at all in his um, relief of of Roethlisberger last week, Uh, but the 49ers looked really impressive all around on offense uh, last game against uh, the Bengals, and I think that as as good as the Steelers' defense has looked in patches, they've still been suspect to the chunk play, suspect to being caught out in a few different ways. And I think that Kyle Shanahan is smart enough to be able to work his way through them and, uh, you know, get the 49ers the win here. Absolutely. Joe agreed again. The Texans at the Chargers. Who have you got in this one? Ooh, this is a tight one. I'm going to say the Chargers. And I think mostly because of how many mistakes they made this week, um, they basically lost this week due to shooting themselves in the foot repeatedly. I don't think that's going to happen two weeks in a row. I think Anthony Lynn's too good a head coach to be able to, for that, for that to repeat itself. And I think the Texans, um, you know, still don't look fantastically convincing on the, on their O line. Um, and I think that the Chargers are a talented enough team to be able to put them to the sword as a result. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And so does Joe. I think the Texans really struggle with Alvin Kamara week one out of the backfield. And I think Austin Eckler is going to have an absolute day in this matchup. Again, like you said, Chargers made too many mistakes. They're going to come back. They're going to beat the Texans side that just doesn't look as impressive as it should do, given the talents on that team, which I have written an article about on thedropback.com if you guys want to go check it out. Okay, so final game for our quick predictions, Bears at Redskins. I'm going to say the... Bears, I think Mitch Trubisky, like I said, has looked shaky, but I think that Bears defense ultimately, uh, talent-wise, is a lot better than uh, than what the Redskins has to offer on offense. Um, I think ultimately the Bears defense are going to win this one in, in what I think will be quite a low-scoring affair. Okay, I'm going to go with the Redskins, actually. I'm really not impressed by that Bears offense at all. I think the Red- Redskins have a really good defensive unit that's been criminally under-mentioned so far this season and through the off-season. And I think they've got enough talent and speed on the outside to challenge this Bears team. I think maybe it could be 10 points almost to win this game, given what the Bears have done this year. <clears throat> Which brings us to our more deep previews. The Ravens at the Chiefs. Joe has gone with the Ravens here because of course he has. He said they played them close last year. They were a better team. Lamar Jackson has decided that he can actually pass now. 
I'm going to take the other side of this one. Yeah, so the Chiefs, they only scored 28 points in the second quarter last week against the Raiders. But on the other hand of things, they only had to score 28 points in this one against the Raiders to win the game. I think in a tough ball game, I think that the Chiefs will win this one. I I think they view the Ravens as a contender, and I don't think they're going to take them too lightly. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Chiefs on this one, simply because I think Patrick Mahomes is again showed us why he is the reigning MVP and why I think he'll go on to be MVP again this season. I think it'll be quite close, though. The Ravens' defense has looked, uh, you know, bright. Lamar Jackson has looked fantastically bright as well. But I think I think you're right. I think that the Chiefs are going to click into gear a little bit more now that they've got a real powerhouse to contend with in in in, in a contest. And I think that ultimately that Chiefs offense is going to outscore the Ravens in what will be quite high scoring. Yeah, absolutely. The Chiefs still have that speed without even without Tyreek Hill to take the top of the defense on any single play that they want to, and they've taken a step forward on defense as well. They've brought in Tyron Matthew, that's been a great addition, as well as Frank Clark, and I think. They're going to do well to slow down the Ravens' run game that's been absolutely gashing teams so far. Yeah, I mean, the Ravens, I think what's been fantastic about them is that they have been able to gash teams on the ground, as you said, like they did last season, but they've also been effective through the air. Um, It'll be interesting to see how Lamar Jackson deals with the Chiefs' defence. I think they've been able to get a much more consistent pass rush, and as you said, Tyron Matthew... um, at safety brings a completely different element to what you have to account for in the passing game. Uh, I still think Lamar Jackson is going to be impressive because he he has looked the real deal so far. But I I don't think when it comes down to what it what, what it could come down to, which would be a quarterback duel, I think that Patrick Mahomes is the best in the league and he's going to show it. Yeah, especially how good the Chiefs are at Arrowhead with that home field advantage and the massive crowd noise that it generates there. So Joe has gone with the Falcons away to the Colts. What do you think of that one? Hmm. I think the fact that they're away makes it a little bit more difficult. If it was the Falcons at home against the Colts, I would be uh, Falcons in a heartbeat. I think the fact that it's away could provide a bit more of a challenge. I'm still going to go with the Falcons. I think that they looked fantastic on offense uh, during that that Eagles game. I like the fact that Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley are you know featuring so heavily and in more creative ways. You know you don't usually see a screen pass to Julio Jones. Um, you see you see him as more of a sort of down the field, um, you know, big bodied receiver. But he is such a talented sort of he is that all world receiver that he can do everything. And I think that. The, the Colts haven't looked, you know, they haven't taken the massive fall off the cliff that many many sort of predicted after the Andrew Luck retirement. I think Brissett's been pretty stable and 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 has has flashed some some great potential in parts. But I think ultimately the Falcons' offense is going to win them this game because they have been able to get things done in such creative ways and they have been able to you know be effective in in close games like they were against the Eagles. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I think the Falcons took a real step forward this week. And I think what undid them against the Vikings was how far they found themselves behind early doors. They had the pump block, they had the fumble. I just think if they can stay level with this Colts team, I think their experience and quality will just show through in the end. I think the the Colts on defense aren't as talented as the Eagles were. And yes, they're away. But I think this Falcons offense, when it is clicking, is one of the best units in the league. Absolutely. It's got the potential. It's got the playmakers there that when they when they've set up the run and when they've set up the play action game and when that they are firing on all cylinders with the the play calling, they have the weapons to be able to put points up on anyone. And, you know, it's not an indictment on the Colts that I think the Falcons are going to are going to win and score quite a few points in this one. It's more a, um, you know, how highly I rate that Falcons offense and how it's playing at the moment. Okay, so the right Raiders. At the Vikings, I've gone with the Vikings in this one. I think they're going to be too strong for the Raiders team that haven't looked as bad as many predicted they would this year. But I think the Vikings team are a good outcome. And at home, I think they'll be able to pound the rock against a Raiders defense that hasn't looked as strong as it could have done. They lost Jonathan Abram for the year, which is going to be a massive loss for them. And I think this Vikings team is just too talented to lose to the Raiders. I am going to respectfully disagree and I think for, for me, it comes down to Kirk Cousins and Derek Carr. And 
I think week one, Derek Carr looked fantastic and made some really fantastic throws. The Raiders, like I said, many have suspected to, to have a very sort of down year this year. But, you know, everyone was quite pleasantly surprised with how well they were able to perform week one. Week two, coming up against Kansas City, different story. You know, Derek Carr tosses a couple of bad interceptions. Um, but you have to remember that, you know, Kansas City, for many, are Super Bowl favorites even um already at this stage of the season and throughout the off season um i think that Derek carr has shown that he has the ability to be able to win games i think that josh jacobs has looked pretty impressive so far as well and i don't believe in that vikings that especially that vikings offense to be able to come through in tight situations i don't think kirk cousins has you know, shown us so far that he is capable of winning tight games, and I think this will be a tight game. Um, and ultimately, I think the the lack of execution on third down and in the passing game for the Vikings is going to mean that the Raiders are able to sneak a win here. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. Like on the paper, on the face of things, it does look like the Vikings are a more talented team than the Raiders. But you're right, it sometimes does come down to the mentality of things in these games. And Kirk Cousins just proved time and time again that he doesn't necessarily has what it takes to win in the big moments. Ever since his, you like that, screaming run to a reporter, he hasn't shown up in those big moments. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think that, that, that Raiders, I mean, losing Abrams is, is a massive loss for the, for that Raiders defence because he... Um, you know, I think everyone was really excited to see what he was going to do after the the hard no- hard knock series. Um, and I think, you know, he, he showed in, in in that week one contest what he's all about. He's about hard hitting. He's about you know getting in people's faces and, and and making. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty and and deal out the big hits. Unfortunately, that has led to him ending up on IR, um, which he's going to have to learn from. But he is that <laughs> that you know very physical presence at the safety position. But I do think the Raiders have a lot of talent. I think Clean Furrell's been good so far as well. Mm. And they have a lot of sort of hidden gems in that defense, especially that are, you know, sneaky good players that, that have been underrated so far. Absolutely. Could be onto something there. So the Saints away to the Seahawks, which is looking for a tough game for the Saints and Teddy Bridgewater in his first start for them. And I think if this was the other way around in New Orleans and it would be a different story but I think the Seahawks are so good at home Teddy Bridgewater walking into a very hostile atmosphere I think the Seahawks take this one despite not having been at their best so far this season Yeah I completely agree I think that um, the Seahawks on offence I think have at times looked really good we've seen Russell Wilson working his magic as he always seems to do um you know, and, and I think Chris Carson, as well as impressed in places, has been a little bit fumbly, as we saw in the most recent game. But you know, certainly has the talent to be an NFL, you know, caliber bruiser. Um, the big question mark is obviously that that New Orleans quarterback situation, and how is Teddy Bridgewater going to be able to keep that offense running? Obviously, didn't look fantastic in in relief of Breeze this previous week. But, you know, they do have Sean Payton, who's can obviously has shown that he can get pretty creative with the weapons they've got there. They've got Taysom Hill as well that they could actually use as a quarterback if they would like to. Um, so it, it could be interesting. I do think that ultimately the Seahawks will be able to get the win here and capitalize on the fact that it is the first game after losing Breeze. And there's likely to be a bit of an adjustment period. And that Saints offense is, is likely to, to struggle, especially initially so soon after losing Breeze. Yeah, so I think the worrying thing for the rest of the league is, despite not playing their best football, Seattle are already 2-0, and and it could be 3-0 and after this weekend, which against a weakened Saints team. And I think for a Pete Carroll, who likes to have his team playing best around November, December, January, when the playoffs start to come around, if they can power the wins up early doors and get a home field advantage, they're going to be a scary team to face later in the year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, like I said, I mean, the last time that Seattle went 2-0, and they ended up winning the Super Bowl. Um, as you said, we've seen Seattle play really well in flashes so far in the first two contests this season. If they can put that all three phases together, playing well and firing on all cinders, and they could be a really sort of scary underdog prospect, um, you know, for going deep into the playoffs. Uh, and I think they're playing the Saints at absolutely the right time is another key factor in this. 
Absolutely. So the last game of our previews is the Rams at the Browns. And having only seen the first game of the season for the Browns, I'm going to pick against them. I think Aaron Donald is going to cause trouble unless they've seriously revamped that O-line in the meantime. And depending on what happens in this Jets match, I think the Browns could push them close. But I think the Rams are coming into their own flow as well at the time being their offense is starting to fire again just as it did last year and I think this could be a bit too much too soon for the Browns like like said I think the main worry for me as well is that O-line and the fact that uh, you know we saw in that Clash of the Titans week one the way that you know they have all these fantastic skill players that receive position at the running back position fantastic quarterback but if you don't have a strong O-line teams can still neutralise those those great talented players and the Titans did that to, to great effect week one I think the Rams pass rush with Aaron Donald is even better than than what we saw from from the Titans and I think that subsequently we're, we're again going to see that, that Cleveland Browns front seven really struggle to protect the quarterback and you know subsequently the, the Browns are going to struggle to put points on the board and this Rams offence is good enough that they can get the game away from you pretty quickly after like, after we've seen from the most recent game as well, the way that they were able to fire on all cylinders and get their their you know playmakers involved, I think that ultimately the Browns stutter out the gates and and struggle to protect Baker Mayfield early. I think the Rams jump out to a big lead and then subsequently the the, the task is too great for the, the the Browns to come back in the second half. Yeah, I think the Browns really have to prove themselves in Monday Night Football against the Jets to have a chance against these better teams they need to prove that they can protect the quarterback they can establish a run game and then they can utilize all their weapons they do have an extremely talented defense who should be able to maybe slow down the rams offense but again until they can prove that they can run a balanced attack protect mayfield when it when it matters most they're going to struggle to win these tight games yeah, and and we've seen this this sort of problem time and time again. Where you know, I mean, most notably, most notably with the Texans, when you build, you know, a fantastic offense at the skill positions, you get your franchise quarterback, you get your number one receiver, you get a, a you know a bell cow running back, and teams still fail because they haven't sorted the O line, and it is such a staple of the offense. Um, and I think it's again going to be the the point where the that that that's the point where the Browns have put the least amount of. Um, you know, recent effort into into rebuilding, and subsequently they're going to pay for it because they're not going to be able to get the ball to Odell Beckham. They're not going to be able to utilize Jarvis Landry. They're not going to be able to let Baker Mayfield, uh, you know, help win games by himself and 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 utilize that 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 fantastic deep ball that he has. And they're not going to be able to get Nick Chubb rolling on the ground because they don't have the talent up front to be able to secure the trenches and you know build their offense around. Um, you know, keeping the quarterback upright and, and, and the running back, you know, past the, the down marker. Yeah, you're right. And you look at the most successful teams over the last decade or in the NFL history for that matter. They're the teams that have built up from the trenches outwards rather than from the skill positions inwards. It's been a theme throughout throughout the NFL history. The teams that come in with all these shiny pieces, they never seem to live up to expectations. And maybe we are at fault for buying into this Browns hype but at the same time we're one game into their season let's not write them off yet maybe they can be the team that bucks that trend okay so that's the end of our show thank you so much for listening I've been Sam and I've been Matt and check us out online at thedropback.com check us out on Twitter and Instagram at thedropback and on Facebook at the Dropback UK, we post articles, we've got videos coming out, we've got some exciting things lined up for you guys, especially in the world of British football. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>